What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. Today, my guest is Simon Reed, author of The Iron Sea, How the Allies Hunted and Destroyed Hitler's Warships from Hatchet Books. This book details the efforts made by the Allies to sink the Kriegsmarine's major surface combatants, namely the Bismarck, Tirpitz, Nisenau, and the Scharnhorst. Stories range from bombing missions over France and Norway to the epic battle between the HMS Hood and the Bismarck. Anyone who is familiar with the broad strokes of the Second World War is familiar with the sinking of the Bismarck, but most of the other events recounted were new to me, most especially the raid on Saint-Nazaire on the Atlantic coast of France. Many of these stories I cover only briefly in the show, or will cover briefly, but the INC details them with a real eye for the individual experiences of those involved. This is the type of book I really love to include because it fills in so many gaps that I leave in my show. I try to paint a big picture, but leave out a lot of the nitty gritty detail, especially when it comes to personal experiences of those who actually fought in the war. This book gives a very foxhole level, or maybe gunport level, view of that war. I also think it gives a good idea of what the war was like for a sailor or airman. It's easy for most people to imagine the war for an infantryman. But for some reason, a sailor's experiences seem harder to conceptualize, I think. I really enjoyed the book and had a great conversation with the author. I felt like I could have gone on all afternoon talking with him about the war and ships, but alas, I was recording an episode and needed to keep things relevant. Anyway, let's begin Appendix F, The Iron Sea, an interview with Simon Reed. Okay, so uh, to get started, Simon, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, Sean. So overall, just to kind of cover the book in a nutshell, I think we start with uh, covers the battle to sink the Bismarck, the RAF bombing campaign to uh, disable the German fleet at anchor in France, uh, the Channel Dash, Operation Cherubus to uh, get the Scharnhorst and Nisenau back to German home waters, Operation Chariot, which is the raid on Saint-Nazaire, the Battle of the North Cape when Scharnhorst battled the Prince of Wales in the uh, Arctic, and finally, Operation Catechism to sink the Tirpitz, which 
when I list it all out like that, it actually sounds like this book should be, you know, 800 pages long, but it's actually a pretty <laughs> reasonable, uh, what, about 250? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, 286 pages of text, and then the rest is all, uh, you know, sort of endnotes and uh, bibliography. And, and that was um, kind of my intention, actually. I When I sat down to write this book, I knew there were going to be a lot of uh, sort of action scenes, so to speak. And although it is it's a work of nonfiction, obviously, it's a work of military history, I actually think of it more as a true action-adventure story. And I am a big fan of uh, sort of like the summer Hollywood blockbuster type of movies. where Yeah, I can definitely tell from the way you wrote it that it almost exactly, reads like right. fiction. Yeah, you know, where there's, you know, there's a strong storyline, but you don't have to wait too long between the explosions. And that was sort of my intent with, um, with the Iron Sea. Uh, I wanted it to sort of be a book that you could read sitting on the beach. You know, not that many people, you know, have been traveling lately, but that's, that was the intent. So, you know, the book doesn't go into a lot of sort of technical detail about the ships themselves. It's more about the battles and the human drama and sort of the danger that these ships pose to the, to the Allied war effort. But I wanted it to sort of move along with the velocity of a bullet, you know, something that really kept the pages turning. Yeah. And that definitely comes across. I mean, there's, there's definitely a style of writing where you could have covered the same exact information, but in a much more, uh, you know, especially it being a naval-themed book, you know, it could be very much, you know, bearings and headings and, you know, knots, but it doesn't come across that way at all. It's definitely action-packed. Um, yeah, and, and, and that was um, that, that was intentional. You know, when, when you read the, um, you know, the official battle reports and, uh, you know, the war diaries, there is a lot of, you know, we, we aimed the guns 12 degrees and, you know, we, we steered the ship 12 degrees starboard. And I just thought, uh, you know, let's get all this stuff out of it and let's just, you know, everyday language that people can understand and uh, just focus on sort of the exciting bits as it were. I was actually kind of influenced in the writing of the book by Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk. Yeah, I've um, seen that. Yeah, and, you know, I, I went to see that movie uh, just as I started writing Iron Sea, and I loved the way, obviously, he took he took a, obviously, a, a real event, and he, he fictionalized it, uh, whereas the Iron Sea, it's not fictionalized, it's all, you know, real, but I love the way that uh, Nolan sort of turned uh, a piece of history into a survival story, and, uh, you know, sort of like a, a survival thriller, and so that was, that was the intent with, uh, with the Iron Sea. So I guess you've kind of leaned into it a little already, but uh, could you just give us some information about your background and how you came to write this book, what your inspiration was for it? Sure. Uh, my background is uh, I am a journalist by trade. Um, I've been writing books for about uh, 15 years. INC is my ninth book. Uh, I've written several um, World War II books in the past, but this is my first book sort of focusing on uh, naval, naval warfare. And it, it was an accidental book. This wasn't the book I actually, uh, set out to write. Initially, I wanted to write a book on, uh, the raid on San Nazaire, Operation Chariot. And I started doing research for that. And as I was researching it, I realized there was kind of a, a larger story to be told about these four capital uh, ships in the German fleet because the efforts to sort of destroy all four of them, and you mentioned them, Bismarck, Tirpitz, Scharnhorst, and Eisenhower, 
um, there was just a lot of human drama involved uh, in all of it. And so the scope of the book um, expanded. But the nice thing is sort of all the stories are interrelated. So it was a, I was able to sort of kind of tell a connective uh, narrative uh, without sort of the efforts to think these four ships being too, too disjointed in nature. And uh, I'm happy with the way the book came out. My fascination with the World War II, I've always been focused on um, sort of uh, the air war. Uh, I'm British by birth. Uh, I, I moved to the U.S. when I was uh, seven, but my, my grandfather flew, uh, was a telegunner in RAF Bomber Command. And after we moved to the U.S., we always used to fly back to England to spend the holidays with my grandparents in London. And on Christmas Day in England, they, they show the movie The Great Escape on television. It's a tradition there. I, I don't know why they choose Christmas, but that's it. And it was one of my grandfather's favorite movies. And when I was about eight or nine, he sat me down to watch it with him. And uh, I was immediately hooked, especially, you know, Steve McQueen jumping the barbed wire on his motorcycle. It just blew me away. Uh, and that is sort of what pulled me into uh, World War II history and my fascination with the conflict. And it's sort of it's been a constant ever since. Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that. My grandfather was fought in the Pacific in in the Second World War, and you know I never had the you know sit down on Christmas Day and watch the whatever movie with them right. experience. But uh, yeah, I think that for a lot of people, is it rubs of off. Yeah, it rub, it, it it rubs off on you. And, uh, you know, my, my grandfather, he never talked about his experiences, but after he passed away when I was 15, I got his, uh, a guy's RAF logbook that detailed all his various operations. And, um, that was sort of my first kind of glimpse into sort of firsthand accounts of World War II experiences. And that really then fueled my interest, um, in the war. And it's, it's, you know, it's an interest that hasn't eased up over the years. Yeah, and I I definitely appreciate something like this, and I like to include these sorts of things or books like this in my show because I give that very, I don't know, 30,000-foot view sometimes and cover all the broad strokes, but I very rarely get down into that sort of foxhole level or I guess in the case of this book, uh, gunport level view of the war. And um, that sort of brings me to ask, you know, as someone who does like a history podcast for not for a living, but as a as a hobby, I guess you could say. Sure. Um, I'm always interested in sources, and it's you got some very, um, you know, looks like journal entries from average sailors and airmen and officers on these vessels. Yeah. You know, kind of how did you find those, and then take that uh, firsthand those firsthand accounts and turn them into um, a narrative. Sure. The uh, first of all, let me say, you know, when you, when you research a book like this, the the internet is a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Um, when, when I wrote my, my, my first book I ever wrote on World War II came out in the UK years ago, and it was, on, it was about the RAF. And for that, I went to the Imperial War Museum in London and went through a lot of their archives for firsthand accounts. Uh, but the Imperial War Museum in the years since then has digitized a lot of their stuff. And so one of the main sources for uh, the Iron Sea are the sound archives on the Imperial War uh, website and uh, they are they're free to listen to and if you just have a passing interest in the war and want to get some great firsthand experiences on what you know these men and women went through uh, you know I recommend your listeners go out and uh, check it out and um, there are thousands of sound recordings on there and you know obviously at this point um, the thing with the Iron Sea is a, a lot of the participants 
are dead. They <laughs> they went down with the ships or or they passed away from old age. So you, you do have to rely a lot on um, archival material. And so the first source were the sound archives. And, um, you know, one of the most compelling recordings uh, that I listened to when writing this book uh, are the recordings of Ted Briggs and uh, Bob Tilburn, who were two of the sub- survivors from uh, HMS Hood. Uh, and their stories are just absolutely uh, riveting. So that, that's that's uh, one component. The, the second um a source of information were the were the British National Archives. Um, you know, for all of these uh, battles and and operations, there are official reports. And what's amazing about them is the the level of detail. They're not written in sort of uh, a lot of them aren't written in bureaucratic language. They they read like a, a novel with a with a proper narrative flow and a, and a plot and uh, and usually there are uh, appendices to, to, to these with um, with uh, firsthand accounts and uh, battle reports from the participants, and so that was uh, that was a great source of information. And the nice thing is, those those uh, operational reports they sort of they give you the thirty thousand foot view that you were you were just talking about. They give you the high level overview of everything that happened, so you can get the battle or the campaign down on paper. And then what you do is once you sort of have the framework of the battle or, you know, like say the, the, uh, the hunt for Bismarck after, after she sinks uh, Hood, you, sort of, you, you get the basic framework of the hunt down and what happened. And then you go to your first person sources, like the sound archives um, at the uh, Imperial War Museum, or if you can get your hands on letters or journals, and you take the firsthand accounts out there and, and you, you plug it into the framework and, you know, you sort of plug in the holes to create a full story. And the internet has made it very easy to do that because a lot of archives now, you know, they've digitized everything. The, the um, British National Archives, uh, their catalog is all online. So if you know what you're looking for, you can find it and then you can put in a request and they'll actually digitize records for you and uh, email them to you. And it's a great way to research if you're sort of limited in your ability to travel or, you know, you can't get to a, get to a location. So uh, the Internet is, is the researcher's friend. Um, and then, uh, you know, there are uh, websites out there um, where people have posted uh, letters from, you know, their grandparents and loved ones and that sort of thing that survived the war. And that can provide good background information. The BBC had a, a great uh, website up, and I don't know if it's still up, but it was called The People's War. And that was a collection of firsthand experiences from people who had survived, um, you know, the Battle of North Cape where the Scharnhorst sunk, uh, firsthand accounts from the Blitz. Um, I, there was an account on there from the uh, Battle of the Barents Sea, which features in the book, which I, which I use. So if, if you sort of know where to look, you, you can find these uh, resources. And um, the firsthand accounts are what make the book. Um, you know, military history, I love it, but, you know, let's be honest, some books can be very dry. Yeah. Um, yeah. some books, <laughs> some, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, some books are all about sort of the strategy and, and tactics and, and there's a place for that, obviously. And, um, but that's not sort of, that's not my bag, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm more into the, the, the firsthand accounts and the drama and, and sort of having a mix 
of the two. You know, you, you sort of want some of the strategy in there, but I think what really drives home the power of uh, the war and uh, sort of the horrific nature, uh, obviously, are the words of the people who who lived through it, and not just on the Allied side. You know, I made an attempt also to include firsthand uh, accounts from the German side. Yeah, as well. I mean, I definitely appreciate that, especially since it can. It's very easy to just use nothing but English language sources because there's so many of them available to us. Yeah, and you know, I think the importance to it, it is very easy. I think when you, when you write about World War II um, or any conflict, really, it, to to paint in shades of black and white, you have the good guys, and you have the bad guys, and that's it. And um, you know, the one thing uh, in, in writing the Iron Sea, the one thing you see is the respect that British and German naval personnel had for one another, uh, and strangely enough, the empathy they had for one another in every battle. I write about in this book at some point in the in the uh, you know post-operational report that you know the commanders type up. There is a reference to either how brave the Germans fought and uh, you know the empathy they felt when you know when Bismarck went down, and uh, or and on the German side, there's always some comment about you know the bravery with which the British fought and how horrible it was to see you know the British ship go down, knowing that there were men on board going beneath the waves. And, you know, I, th I think sometimes uh, that um, sort of sympathetic view can get lost, you know, when, when you're when you care about trying to create a, an exciting narrative with a lot of explosions and guns blowing up, you know, guns blowing up, that sort of thing. Um, it can get easy to uh, sort of overlook the human element, sort of the human compassion. Yeah. And I think it kind of gives an idea of, you know, we see everything that happens during the action, but it gives an idea of what the aftermath was seeing the mm -hmm. perspectives. Yeah. Absolutely. One moment that um, I found particularly touching is um, when, you know, Hood and, and Bismarck face off. And, you know, when, when you're talking about the Second World War, the clash between Hood and Bismarck, it's one of these iconic naval clashes. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it only lasts, it lasts six minutes, right? From the moment Hood fires her uh, opening salvo at Bismarck, you know, it takes six minutes for um, Bismarck to sink Hood. But it leaves, you know, the Hood is the pride of the British Royal Navy. Uh, and her sinking leaves this. Uh, it inflicts a very deep psychological wound on the uh, on the British public. But at the moment Hood blows up, um, one of the uh, navigator assistants on Bismarck is actually looking at Hood through his viewfinder, and he sees, he witnesses Hood exploding. And even though you know they're like twenty thousand yards apart, whatever it is, you know he he writes uh, he wrote afterwards that. He felt the explosion in every nerve of his body. And he, he writes, you know, my one wish is that our children never have to go through anything like this again. And, you know, I think moments like that are, are important because, again, it, it captures the, the humanity and it really drives home the tragedy of, uh, you know, of what happened. Yeah. And especially um, with something like the naval war, the air war, where I think it's pretty easy for the average person to imagine what it's like to be in the shoes of say an infantryman you know we all it's basically mm -hmm. being in the woods but you got to dig a hole and uh shoot guns at each other and as an infantryman i guess i can say that's more or less what it is but it's always harder to conceptualize what the war was for a sailor and those um depicting those experiences i think at least i have a better idea now of okay this is what it meant to be a sailor on something like, you know, on the hood or on one of those smaller 
motorboats with machine guns mounted right. on them or a destroyer or something that yeah a lot of the time they also are bored and probably sitting at sea looking at nothing but during those brief moments when you're actually in contact shooting at one another you know it's still just as terrifying and just as uh i'm not even sure what the word for it is well i'll, I'll t- you know the, wor- the word is claustrophobic i think because when i started writing the book I sort of wondered the same thing, you know, um, is there going to be drama here? I did not realize until I'd started really uh, digging deep into the research how, uh, when you think of naval warfare, right, you think of two battleships, you know, separated by thousands of yards in open sea, slugging it out. It's kind of impersonal. Um, You know, you don't think there's sort of like a personal uh, aspect to it, but um, that's totally incorrect. You know, th- these ships, for the men on them, although these ships are massive, there's nowhere really for them to run, right? It's, it's a claustrophobic uh, confine. You know, these shells, 15-inch shells, when they hurtle towards the ship, um, in more than uh, one you know, piece of documentation I came across, the, the sound of a naval shell approaching was always compared to uh, the sound of an approaching uh, freight train. You know, it's this loud, screaming, whistling noise. And there was always this horrible tension just before impact of, you know, where is this thing going to land? And there's there's nowhere you can hide. And again, there was also there was awareness on both sides that these men were fighting uh, men just like themselves. Um, you know, when when Bismarck, um, when Bismarck goes down, you know, there's cheering on the British ships. But then on, on one boat. Uh, the men stopped cheering because they realized, hey, wait a minute, you know what? These are guys with, you know, mothers waiting at home and wives and children just like this, just like us. And, and that could very well be um, be us in the water. And so uh, sort of naval combat, there's a closeness to it that um, I wasn't anticipating when I when I started writing the book. And, and that's one thing that I tried to get across in, um, you know, in the story. It's, it's not just machines hammering each other into submission. You know, it's men doing it, but men who don't necessarily want to. Uh, it's just they're just fighting for survival. Yeah, I think, and there are a few very visceral uh, depictions of it. I guess you could say within the book. Uh, I think the raid on Saint Nazaire has some, as well as uh, basically any time there's uh, aircraft and anti-aircraft gunners engaging each other. It seems they seem to describe that they could see the remains of men and blood scattered across the ships or you know if a shell tore through the bridge or something and just what's left behind is devastation yeah and that's the that was the other thing um it was gruesome i I, it's stupid to say oh you you know i I didn't think naval combat was as gruesome (laughs) as this but uh again you know i think when we think of naval combat we think of ships sort of pounding on one another but um it it was uh, it was a gruesome um, experience and you know when uh, Hood and Bismarck face off, you know uh, Bismarck sings Hood and then turns her guns on uh, Prince of Wales and you know there's there's a part in the book where a shell goes through the bridge on Prince of Wales and there's a young sailor um, on board who's 16 years old and he's given a mop and he's told to go into the bridge and clean up the mess and um, you know I mean think about it, 16 years old and he walks into the bridge and all he sees are uh, is human flesh and remains smeared all over um, all over the walls uh, you know it, it was a very visceral um, thing same thing with um, San Nazaire you know these these guys 
uh, you know, sort of raid a French port. They're in wooden motor launches, and they're being blasted at by anti-aircraft guns. And the devastation is, I mean, the violence on that raid was was horrific. Um, and, you know, you write about that stuff in the book not because you're trying to, like, gross people out or because, uh, you know, you've got some sort of bloodlust, but um, you want to convey sort of the horrific nature of, of war. Um, you know, I think when you sit down to write a book like this, you, you don't want to romanticize it uh, or make it look, you know, make it look fun. You want to try you – want, you want to convey as well as you can how horrible it was uh, to be there and to also sort of drive home – what ordinary men and women were asked to do, you know, the incredible sacrifice they made and sort of the, the horrific experiences they went through. Yeah, and I think especially given the, maybe it's the culture or the sensibilities of the time that the war took place, those depictions and descriptions weren't uh, front and center, you know, they, those are stories that were, didn't come out until years later or that weren't really widely known outside of the people who actually participated in them. So it, it kind of uh, helps to color in the picture a little bit from, you know, our usual history channel documentary style it, view of the war, I think. Exactly. And, you know, when I was writing this book, um, Shawnee raised an interesting point because, you know, some of the books I, uh, I you know, read um, while researching this book were written in the 1950s. Um, you know, I think one was written in the late 1940s. So they, they, they were published, you know, pretty soon after the events described. And what you realize when you read them is, they're very whitewashed and they're very clean. Um, Robert Ryder, who was uh, the commander on the San Isaire raid, he he writes uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Raid on San Isaire. It's a short volume and it came out, I want to say in the early 50s, I can't remember the date exactly. But it gives a good framework of the raid and he sort of kind of you know describes the action, but it doesn't in any way sort of detail the, the immense violence uh, that these men went through. Um, and sort of this, uh, you know, sort of tempest of fire. And so, you know, you really do have to look to sort of the firsthand accounts um, that were written. And, I, you know, one thing, not with this book, but just from past experiences, when I've interviewed uh, veterans from the war, you know, when I wrote a book years ago on the, on the RAF, the, the one thing I found was the incredible reluctance of these, these men to, to talk about their experiences. You know, they didn't want to go into any detail about anything. And if they made some sort of comment, uh, you know, if, if they did talk about it, they were very self-deprecating. Like, oh, what's the big deal? All of us did it. So I think, you know, going back in time, you know, talking about it back then, if you went through it, it might have been seen as bragging because everyone sort of did their bit. Um, but I think as, you know, the years have worn on and, you know, uh, records have become unclassified, and, you know, more firsthand accounts have, have come out, then, you know, we've been able to get a better picture of, um, you know, sort of just how brutal it was. Yeah. And, uh, well, we've mentioned the, the raid on San Isaire a few times already, and I kind of wanted to talk about that a little more in depth. Sure. So, I mean, for, I, going into this book, had never heard of it and didn't know what it was. So, in a nutshell, it was essentially, um, so I forget the, uh, it was the Scharnhorst, which was docked in it Norway. Was, it, it, it was, it was actually the Turpits. The Turpits, yeah. So, yeah. Um, First of all, it's, a, it's, it's funny, yeah, in, in the U.S., uh, the San Isaire raid doesn't get a lot of, uh, what do you want to say, coverage, or it's, it's, not, it's not talked about a lot. In the U.K., it's, it's a big deal. It's considered, you know, some historians have called it the greatest raid of all time because it was, first of all, the plan was so crazy. 
Um, and the men who took part, I, I, they were just stupefyingly brave <laughs> when you look at what they did. And of all the things I write about in the book, Chariot is my is my favorite one. And, and for folks who, who don't know about it, um, it was a British commando raid on on the port of Saint-Nazaire, which is home to uh, the Normandy dry dock, which was the largest dock. It was the only dock on the European Atlantic coast large enough to hold a ship of Tirpitz's size. And Tirpitz is anchored in Norway away from uh, RAF bombers. But the British are terrified that she's going to sell from Norway and make a break into the North Atlantic and, you know, cut across Britain's shipping lanes and sort of, you know, starve Britain to death. So what they do is they decide to uh, deny Tirpitz a uh, safe harbor on the Atlantic coast by destroying this dry dock um, in San Nazaire. And so Tirpitz won't have a base of operations should she try to break into the um, Atlantic. And, and the dock, it's, it's huge. It's about 164 feet wide. It's uh, 52 feet deep. You know, they can't bomb this thing away because, you know, they, they lack the means for precision bombing. And it's going to be impossible to sort of uh, attack it you know, through naval bombardment because the port sits six miles up the lower estuary. So what the British decide to do is they take an old destroyer, the HMS Campbelltown, and they load the, the, the bow of the boat with 24 depth charges. And they load the depth charges into steel drums and they encase the steel drums in cement. So you got about four tons of concrete and explosives. And their plan is to sail this boat up the uh, lower estuary under a German flag and ram it into the dry dock. And uh, they put 80 commandos on board this boat. And the plan is that the boat will ram into the dock. The 80 commandos will jump off the boat, blow up a bunch of uh, port facilities, because it was also a big U-boat pen, Santa Sarah. And, you know, so the plan was they blow up a bunch of um, uh, facilities in the port to make it useless. Sailing, in, um, sailing along with Campbelltown are 12 other motor launches, each motor launch with a, another raiding party of 15 commandos. They'll all jump ashore, do the damage, get back on the motor launches, head back to England, and then at you know, 8 o'clock the following morning, Campbelltown will explode and the dock will be destroyed. Um, what happens is they get their cover is blown, basically, um, a, you know, just a couple of miles from the port. They actually make it quite, quite a ways up the estuary before uh, their cover is blown, and they are... Um, uh, exposed to absolute hellacious fire. And these motor launches that the commandos are, are, are riding on, these, these 12 motor launches, you know, they're made of wood. And their, their fuel tanks are, sit on top of the deck. So these motor launches are being shredded. Uh, fuel tanks are exploding. You know, burning gasoline is spilling into the river. The river's catching on fire. Men are falling into the river. Um, they had two embarkation points, uh, disembarkation points, for the San Nazaire, there was a pier where they were gonna, where six um, motor launches were meant to dispatch their commandos, and then there was a area near the dry dock where um, uh, another six motor launches were meant to dispatch their commandos. In in the event, you know, only about a hundred commandos get on shore. Most of the lo motor launches are absolutely shredded. Most of the crews are um, are killed. They do manage to ram Campbelltown into the target. Um, but what happens is the commandos are actually make it on shore. They're stranded. There's no way to get home. And it turns into this all-night battle for survival. It's a really brutal slog. The, the fight spills out, of, spills out of the port and into the town of San Nazaire itself. And you know, I should add that the San Nazaire attack force, it was 611 men, and the port itself was defended by 6,000 Germans. So 
you get a sense of the odds. And uh, it's a running gun battle all through the night and into the morning um, when the surviving commandos eventually have to uh, surrender uh, because they run out of ammunition. But the fight during the night, it's building to building, it's through basements, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a brutal encounter. Um, the commandos are rounded up and uh, shipped off to a, you know, shipped off to captivity. The, the Campbelltown does explode. I think it's like nine o'clock the following morning. Um, the blast is is so big. Um, it's it scatters uh, uh, body parts, but you know, like all through the town. Um, what account I read said like a week later they were still finding arms and legs on on roofs and buildings. At at the time. Um, at the time Campbelltown explodes, there are about 400 German officers inspecting the damage, uh, looking at the ship. So they all go up in the blast. But uh, they do knock the uh, port out of use, or the dock out of use. So it does deny Tirpitz the base of operations for the Atlantic. So it, it was a success. And even the Germans, um, you know, in the days after, uh, there's a radio broadcast. And the, and the radio announcer says, uh, I'm sure every heart in Germany goes out to the courage of the British servicemen who carried out this audacious attack. And um, it was, you know, it, it was a morale, it was a great morale booster back in the, uh, back in the UK. Um, yeah, it's just an amazing, it's just an amazing story. Why it hasn't ever received sort of more attention on this side of the Atlantic, I don't know, because it's just, it's actually fantastic. I mean, it's the stuff of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, it's got everything you need for a movie. Um, and especially the way it's described in the in the book, I, there were a few times I had to kind of flip back and be, you know, say, okay, wait, which group of guys is this? Because it just seems like, it, with all the, the motor launches and, and the destroyer running up, it, it was chaotic even from the very beginning. Um, and it, it, especially it, once it, they, it was, they land, you know, it just... It, it, yeah. It, it was. It was complete and, and utter chaos. Uh, once the Germans um, figured out what was happening, any sort of any kind of sense of cohesive plan went out the window. And there's a you know there was a great uh, one of the things I read when I was researching the book from uh, you know one of the participants. He just wrote this great thing where you know they they, they were traveling up the estuary under a German flag um, when the Germans realized what was happening. Um, you know, they, they pulled the German flag down and raised the Royal Navy flag. And, you know, this like cheer went up you know, all the men on the boats. And then they, you know, they storm headlong into this hellstorm of fire. But, um, you know, once these commandos got onto um, onto dry ground and the landings were uh, vicious, you know, they had the Germans had placed anti-aircraft batteries on the rooftops of the buildings in the harbor, which they then which they could also use to aim at ground targets. And so these guys are coming under anti-aircraft fire. They're coming under machine gun fire. Once these guys got on the ground, I mean, there was no sort of cohesive plan. It was just, you know, sort of try and do the job you were meant to do and, and survive. And the rule was, um, you know, if any of your comrades are um, shot or injured, leave them. You know, uh, time is of the essence. Uh, you, you, you can't hang about. Yeah, I mean, um, if, if there was one word to describe this raid, I think it would just be balls. Because it... yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that seriously, I mean, that is that's probably the best word to describe. Again, when I was like, you know, I I I'd known about the raid, and I yeah, I'd read some uh, stuff on it before, but when I sort of did the in-depth research, I just like I just couldn't fathom. And there's a there's uh, there's a scene in the book which comes from one of the first ten accounts 
that, you know, this, they had to keep this operation top secret, obviously. And so the men who took part, and I should say out of the 611 uh, men who, who took part, you know, 169 were killed, uh, 215 were taken POW, 227 make it back to the UK, five actually make it back by foot. They, they make it through France, Spain, into Gibraltar, and then uh, get back to the UK. But, um, you know, the men who took part in this operation, they went through all this training, but they weren't actually they weren't told what they were training for. And uh, it's like 24 hours before the raid takes place, they're told what, what their mission is. And um, the, the commanding officer asked these guys, you know, if, if you don't want to do this, I understand. I know some of you are married, some of you have kids. If, if you don't want to do it, raise your hand, no judgment. You're free to walk out and go. And, and no, one, no one raised their hand. And I read that and I was thinking, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I probably would have like <laughs> my hand might have gone <laughs> yeah. off. Yeah, you know? <laughs> um, sitting in the back of the room. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that does kind of bring me to to the next thing I want to discuss about it, which was really, you know, was the juice worth worth the squeeze? I mean, it as daring as it was, and it was successful. I mean, the amount of well trained commandos that were lost, the mm-hmm. the sailors that were involved, there was a lot of talent i guess you could say that was lost from a lot of talent that was lost yeah and you know it's questionable whether or not and and of course it's easy now to say you know 2020 hindsight looking back right but it's it's questionable whether or not um the raid was the raid was necessary you know Turpitz was anchored in Norway. She wasn't really gonna. She wasn't really gonna go anywhere. Hitler was terrified of of, of losing her, and he wasn't gonna expose her to, um, you know, to any confrontation with the Royal Navy. Um, obviously, the British didn't know that at the time. Uh, I, I think it was probably worth it in the sense that it was a, uh, it was a morale booster for. For the British, you know, this happens in 1942. 1942 is a tough year for the Allies. Things aren't, you know, aren't going well. Um, so I, I think in terms of public perception, it was it was good. But yeah, you know, the loss of um, the loss of these commandos and the resources used. Um, uh, my mind's blanking, but uh, oh, Admiral McRaven, obviously, who you know, sort of yeah, I was going to bring that up at the end of the book. You yeah. uh, include his yeah. uh, small bit of his analysis. Yeah, he sort of says that. So sort of, um, the planning for the raid, it was audacious, but it wasn't fully thought through. And he said, you know, like the number of men committed to the raid, he said, was it was ridiculously small for the task that they were going to do and i think his his um sort of critiques of the operation were that the men spent too long on target um you know their their scope was too broad the only thing that sort of saw these men through was their dedication to the job um and so he he views it the same way it was a great morale booster but whether or not it actually served any purpose other than like bolstering British morale back home, you know, is questionable. Yeah. And I mean, but with a lot it, of. It, it makes for phenomenal reading. Oh, it definitely <laughs> does. And, and I mean, and with anything involving, especially the British military in the World War II, you have to ask yourself how much of this was, especially something as high profile as this, is how much of this was because it was one of Churchill's personal priorities as opposed to something yeah, sure. more. It's, yeah, it, that's. That's a good point because Churchill is obsessed with Tirpitz. 
He's actually obsessed with all, all four, all, all four uh, capital ships in this book. Churchill is obsessed with. Um, Turpitz in particular really just nags at him. I mean, he, he just wants this thing um, destroyed. And he was constantly, for lack of a better word, harassing you know, his, his military chiefs. Like, what are you doing about Turpitz? You know, what have you done about Turpitz? Where's Turpitz? What have you done, to, uh, you know, what have you done this week to try and, to try and sink her? So uh, you know, I do think some of this was probably, you know, to appease, to appease Churchill's demands, but you know, I also understand Churchill's concern. I mean, you know, Britain, you know, the fact it's an island serves it well in one point in that it, it spares Britain from obviously the the Blitzkrieg in the summer of 1940, but it it, it leaves her uh, obviously prone to blockade and starvation. Yeah, and I think uh, Churchill probably was desperate for a means to strike back at. at... Hitler directly, you know, he'd been caught up in, in the U-boat battle and these sort of very indirect attacks on something like this maybe offered Absol- him some absolutely. way of attacking directly. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And, you know, the commandos that took part in the San Nazaire raid, you know, Churchill, uh, you know, the, the commandos were created um, from an order that, you know, by Churchill himself, because Churchill knew that uh, the British Army wasn't going to be returning to the continent in any meaningful uh, form for, for a while, you know, the, Britain wasn't going to be launching an invasion of the continent by itself. Um, but he wanted a way to sort of do these guerrilla attacks, you know, sort of guerrilla warfare raids, that sort of thing, uh, on coastal targets to sort of show Germany that Britain wasn't backing down, and also to give the people at home something to something to cheer about. And there have been a couple of commando raids before San Isidare, you know, against like some island outposts in Norway and a few other places. But this was like the first really big um big deal and uh you know part of it was to show germany that britain wasn't lying down you know britain and germany were confined at that point to either slugging it out in the air you know battling it out on the sea and of course there was the there was the desert war going on but you know he he wanted uh he wanted some offensive action closer to home and san Isidro was it yeah yeah so um to sort of shift gears here um the way I've kind of thought about the the battle against the, especially the surface fleet of the Kriegsmarine, was that it it was sort of anticlimactic that it kind of petered out after the battle against the Bismarck. But um, I guess I didn't realize how those efforts to sink the you know the Nizenau, the Turpets, and the Scharnhorst continued throughout the mm-hmm. war with some really daring raids. Um, was that a sense that you know this wasn't an anticlimactic thing? This was actually a, something that did not fizzle out from the beginning or did, was this something you sort of realized as you were researching and writing? No, I, I realized, you know, I, when I started writing this book, I wasn't sure, uh, you know, how, how it was going to play out, what sort of the, the attitude of British commanders were. Obviously I knew, let's put it this way. When I started writing, my, my thought was kind of the same as you, the, the Bismarck is, that's like the end all be all of sort of the war against the, the German surface fleet and uh i mean you know the story of the bismarck that that's like a tale of vengeance for the ages it's, it's a is a wonderful dramatic um story but in researching the book what came to light is that e- even after bismarck w- was sunk there was there was euphoria in the uk there, there was a lot of uh you know churchill was thrilled about it but um sort of as i kind of said earlier his his focus shifted to turpitz you know turpitz is just as bi- big as bismarck in fact turpitz you undergo some uh, modifications, and she's actually she, she's actually slightly larger uh, than Bismarck, and so Churchill views her as a major risk not only to 
British convoys, you know, convoys between the U.S. and Britain and uh, British convoys between, you know, the U.K. and, and you know, Britain's armies overseas. But also, uh, because she's anchored in Norway, he, he views her as a major threat to, um, to Russian convoys between, uh, from, from the U.K. And well, that was actually one thing that uh, I learned that I did not know when, before I started writing this book, that between um, August of 41 and May of uh, 45, there are 78 Allied convoys between the U.K., and Russia, and they ship about they they provide Russia with about uh, four million uh, tons of supplies free of charge. And that by the end of 1941, a third. This was an interesting statistic. I had no idea. By the end of 1941, a third of the tanks on the Russian front were British tanks, uh, and then the British were using uh, American tanks from then lease to sort of fill in the gaps in their own sort of armored uh, lines in in uh, in North Africa, but. The, the surface ships were a major th threat throughout the war. Um, Scharnhorst and Nisa now are a threat because they are, you know, they spend a good part of the war anchored in in Brest, um, you know, on the French Atlantic coast, where they have easy access to Britain's sea lanes. And Churchill uh, was absolutely adamant that those ships get destroyed as well. Um, so even in, even after the United States enters the war and, you know, it looks, you know, victory becomes more of a sure thing. The destruction of these ships remains, um, remains imperative because obviously, you know, Britain still got to ship its armies overseas. Um, you know, Britain still has to, you know, control the English channel for, you know, D-Day, you know, supplies still have to come in for the American armies from the U S and these ships at any time can, can threaten, uh, sort of the arteries that provide all of that. So the, the threat was real and constant. And even in 1944, when Tirpitz is, you know, she's damaged catastrophically in one air raid, and, but she, she refuses. I mean, she's the boat that refused to sink. She takes an absolute beating constantly. I mean, the British try to sink her like 20 times from, it's like October 1940 to uh, November 44 when they finally do it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's kind of remarkable the amount of punishment all of these ships take without it, sinking. It, it's 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 remarkable. It really shocked me when I was you know when I was uh, writing this book. I mean you know you read it like um, Sharnhor. She she gets blasted at one point. You know she has like a thousand tons of water flood into her like uh, lower compartments and she still stays upright. You know it, it's it's remarkable engineering. But even with Turpitz uh, mortally wounded uh, in Norway and really not able to take part in any kind of wartime operations, even though the British knew this, they they received German radio intercepts, Churchill still wants her sunk. And he, he even, he even uh, writes to uh, you know, the heads of the Air Force and the Navy, and he says, you know, Tirpitz is a prize we need to claim, even if it means, you know, sort of more loss of British lives. We, we have to sink her. And I think one of the reasons for that, too, is, you know, sort of, you know, she's a symbol of uh, German military might. She's a symbol of, you know, Nazi hubris, uh, you know, and I, I think there was sort of a symbolic um, you know, a symbolic victory too, and you know, sort of getting rid of a ship like that. Yeah. So, I, and I think that takes us to maybe the what maybe the the final point is is you know was what was the overall impact of the German surface fleet and was I mean was Hitler right at when at the end of the book he gets in it, that argument with Admiral Rader you know saying hey these are just a drain on resources that's the right. boat fleet that is what's really mm -hmm. gonna if we're going to win this war, that's what's going to do it. These big, yeah. cool-looking battleships don't actually win us any battles. Right. It's interesting. So the German surface fleet, it, it was 
it was a fleet that was, number one, hampered by impossible odds, right? Because there was no way it could take on sort of the Royal Navy head on. You know, obviously, at the, you know, in the beginning of the war, in the war, you know, war's early years, the Royal Navy is the largest naval force on Earth. So the, the, the German surface fleet wasn't going to be able to sort of tackle, tackle that challenge. But at the same time, it cost so much in men and materials that it couldn't just simply sit in harbor looking good. And then, but at the same time, simply doing commerce raiding and sinking uh, merchant ships wasn't, it was almost a task like kind of like below its, um, you know, below its full potential. And so I, I think the effectiveness of the German surface fleet was as a psychological weapon. I, I think it was more of a psychological weapon than anything else. It inflicted um, it inflicted a terror on British military, um, you know, military commanders. Um, you know, Britain for you know the early years of the war was hanging on by its its fingernails. You know, it, it was it was holding the line. The war was Britain's to lose, and anything that threatened that, uh, you know, had to be had to be eliminated. Um, yeah, Britain required 23 million tons of supplies a year coming across the Atlantic to keep it to keep it fighting. And so as long as these ships uh, remained afloat, whether they were in harbor or, you know, anchored in, in Norway or whatever, um, they were they were a danger to um, British survival. So I think their war was psychological. That's not to say they didn't have an impact. You know, obviously, you know, um, uh, Bismarck does inflict a really bloody wound on the British public with the sinking of Hood. Um, so, you know, they did have uh, some some moments, but I think all in all, they were um, they were a psychological weapon more than anything else. And and the, the U-boats were U-boats were the real actual physical menace. Yeah, and I mean, I think you could probably have a very long conversation about the utility of the German surface fleet. Even, I mean, they had the same problem in the First World War, where they, sure, they had these big, great battleships, but the one fleet they need to defeat, the Royal Navy, is the one that they're never going to be able to beat. It's the it, same story exactly. in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and what's interesting is, you know, Hitler, after the Battle of the uh, Barents Sea, um, which was meant to take out a uh, convoy that was, you know, on its way to Russia, uh, and it, the, the the battle, you know, doesn't go well for the Germans. You know, uh, Hitler orders. Uh, he basically wants the surface fleet program scrapped, and uh, Grand Admiral Raider, having you know, sort of lost Hitler's confidence, he resigns. And then what's interesting is, you know, Donitz, uh, you know, commander of the uh, uh, U-boats, he 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 becomes Grand Admiral. And he actually, and he was actually against the surface fleet program. Uh, to begin with, but he actually talks Hitler into, um, you know, sort of keeping some of their surface ships because to scrap them all would hand the British, you know, an easy victory. And so, you know, the reason the program isn't, fully, you know, the surface fleet isn't fully scrapped is because of, uh, you know, during its, um, you know, sort of arguing the case to uh, at least keep Scharnhorst and uh, Tirpitz anchored in Norway as a threat to Russian convoys and uh, a deterrent to uh, Allied invasion of Norway. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> There's when it comes to the the surface fleet engagements, especially in in the Atlantic, that there's a lot of uh, psychological untangling to do. I mean, so much of it seems to be that these ships exist sort of just to exist. Um, 
the one yes, tangible effect yeah. that it did seem to have is that, and you mentioned this in the book, is that the fact that the Scharnhorst was still docked in Norway kept the British home fleet home as opposed to fighting in the Far East or something where maybe it could have had a more tangible impact. Yeah, Scharnhorst moves to Norway in 1943, and, and Turpis is already there. And then um, Scharnhorst is sunk on um, uh, December 26, 1943, and, and Turpis becomes, she was dubbed the Lonely Queen of the North. You know, she's, she's the last of Hitler's capital ships. And, and, you know, she's there, and exactly, the, the British keep the bulk of their fleet tied down in northern waters just out of fear that Tirpitz is going to uh, sort of break into the Atlantic again. Once Tirpitz is sunk in uh, 1944, you're right, then they, you know, they ship a bunch of ships, uh, you know, over to the Pacific uh, for the British Pacific fleet. But it's, it's, it's amazing that um, one ship uh, could have such an impact. So in a way, Tirpitz did serve a purpose, um, you know, it's funny. She only fired her guns in anger like once. She raids a uh, a um, Allied uh, weather station in September of nineteen, I think September nineteen forty three. And it's, I think it's only the it's like the first or second time she fires her guns in an offensive action. And then she never, uh, you know, other than like you know when she's attacked by bombers, she actually never takes part in any sort of naval action again. Yeah, um, I mean, it's actually I I mean personally, I just am fascinated with just those big ships just from an engineering perspective i guess you could say and it's sort of disappointing that they never really go to toe to toe except for the bismarck and hood and prince of wales and, and, and... It, ex- exactly i i feel the same way it's i was actually thinking about it the other day you know because people are fascinated by these sh- these ships i i think number one because they are such you know immense powerful machines but also i mean because they're such relics of the past and i i, I sort of think of um kind of compared to people who are train enthusiasts you know they love the old-fashioned steam engines because yeah. they're you know beautiful beautiful design but you, you know that they're a relic of history and i think that's sort of that's kind of how i view these ships and i think that's why their story remains you know so popular i mean you know you don't have to be uh, a world war ii uh expert or a history geek to you know hear the names bismarck hood turpis and know what someone's what someone's talking about i mean they've really sort of transcended transcended time yeah and i mean personally anytime there's a description of or just those rare events when actual battleships engaged each other mm-hmm. i think it only happened like half a dozen times throughout the whole second world war when you actually had 15 inch guns yeah. firing at 14 inch guns and having that exchange you know and well, two of those are are depicted here you just have to cherish those because they're so few and far it, between it, it, it is and it was an amazing it was an amazing spectacle and you know one of the one of the occasions where that happens is the battle of north cape where uh hms duke of york uh you know takes on uh Scharnhorst. and you know these are two you know massive <laughs> monsters of war and um one of the sailors on one of the accompanying cruisers uh british cruisers just said it was amazing watching these two ships basically sort of kind of smash each other you know pound each other relentlessly with these big guns and they you know the noise and the spectacle of it all was was awe-inspiring even to men who'd been through naval battles um before and you know it's it's kind of like godzilla versus king kong right it's, it's like <laughs> yeah a, you know it's like a clash of titans the last thing I would ask you is, uh, what would you say the the big takeaway is? I think the big takeaway 
from this book is to come away with a respect for what ordinary people were asked to do and the sacrifice that ordinary people made for their country. Um, you know, you read about these guys in the midget submarines who raided turpits or the you know, flyers and the bombers in the freezing temperatures, you know, the sailors who went down in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic, you know, whether they, regardless of what side they were on, um, the sacrifice was immense. And it was a time when sort of ordinary people were asked to do extraordinary things, things that went beyond the limits of normal uh, human endurance. And I, and I think, you know, as the years pass, you know, we've got fewer, uh, fewer uh, World War II veterans around to sort of tell their stories. And so I think it's important that, you know, when these stories do come out, people pay attention to them and remember what was asked, asked of that generation back then. And, you know, the greatest generation, you know, it, it becomes, you know, it, it is cliche, uh, you know, greatest generation. But it, it is remarkable what these people were asked to do. And, you know, they answered the call and, um, you know, some of them paid a terrible price for it. Definitely. And I think uh, your your passion for the, the subject matter and to tell these people's stories comes through on the page. Anyway, I'd like to say it was a great conversation, Simon, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Sean, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.